As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's wonderful guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a plethora of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I am joined by the brilliant Dr. Lydia McGrew, a widely published analytic philosopher and author. She defends the reliability of the Gospels and acts in several books, most recently in her fantastic new book, Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. Lydia, why is it important that the Gospels are defensible as historical documents, do you think? Well, so much depends on them. Um, if if we have any uh, original source documents, as historians say, of the life and teaching of Jesus, they and the book of Acts, that the, there's a scene with Jesus at the very beginning, they're it. Okay, there's, there's nothing else that has a better claim or even an equal claim to be our primary source documents. So um, if we want to know what Jesus taught, that's that's the place we need to be going, not trying to get it indirectly. Indirectly is much weaker. Um, and for the resurrection, I've emphasized an approach to arguing for that central miracle that I've dubbed the maximal data approach. And I think it's important to be able to argue that the, the gospel authors didn't just add stuff for apologetic purposes. They didn't say, oh, you know, I'm going to have... Uh, Thomas touched Jesus because, you know, we we need that. We we want that in there. I'm just going to make that up. We need to be able to argue and prepared to argue against that. And so gospel reliability is helpful and, and actually crucial there as well. Now, what kind of information should we be looking for from outside sources regarding the accuracy of the gospel accounts? I think what we should be looking for are what I call incidental confirmations. So, um, Sometimes people will say, hey, you know, do we have an account from some outside source of the feeding of the 5,000 or something like that, you know, a specific event? Uh, and I don't think we should expect to find that. There was nobody live blogging uh, Jesus' <laughs> ministry. Okay, you know, it was very different. Um, we don't actually have, we have like maybe one short shelf of, of sources from that time period. Um, so what we should be looking for and in fact do find are these little things uh, the name of some obscure ruler or a matter of geography that's mentioned in passing in the gospel, that kind of thing, those are actually, in a sense, stronger than 
uh, some very, very direct and in a sense almost crude confirmation of an event in the Gospels. And what are some of those details mentioned in the gospel um, that you help that you think help to make them look more historically accurate? Well, as far as the external details, um, there are there's so many. So, for example, Luke uh, in a, right at the beginning of his narrative of John the Baptist's ministry names a whole bunch of rulers. Now, some of these are very well known, like Caesar, you know. Tiberius Caesar, but um, some of them are very obscure, and we only even know that they existed at that time. Sometimes by like a, a an inscription, you know, that we found. Oh, you know, there was a second guy named Lysanias, that kind of thing, um, or just these casual references. Twice in John, it says they went down to Capernaum, and that's the voice of a person I believe who's actually actually walked it. <laughs> okay, because it. Prior to that, it's always you're in the hills, especially Cana, which was in the hills. And then Capernaum, I believe, is actually below sea level. It's on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, so you would go down. And in an era where you walked or at most maybe rode on a donkey or something, you would feel that going down. But he just says it the way I would say, you know, I went down to the foot of the hill of the shell station. And if you live here, you know that the, the shell station is at the foot of the hill. So, um, that kind of thing really, really confirms that authenticity. They're deeply embedded in their culture and in their time and their place. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, I love in the your most recent book, you've, you've sort of listed some of the evidences um, in chapters. I'll just read some of those now. We've got location, customs and culture, undesigned coincidences, unnecessary details, unexplained illusions, unexpected harmonies, unified personalities we obviously don't have time to go into great depth they're almost a podcast in and of itself each one but let's talk a little bit about location as you mentioned there they're going down to Capernaum because the gospels do use very specific locations don't they now why is that significant Lydia why do they give such specific locations I think because the authors either were disciples of Jesus as in the case of John or were talking to disciples of Jesus, as in the case of Luke and Mark. Um, and so we're getting at these events at what I call very few removes. You know, it's either directly from an eyewitness or maybe at one one further remove. And that's how people do talk. You know, um, if you're just telling a story, you're going to bring up some, uh, some location as it impinges upon your story, but you're not trying to show off, right? And so it shows, I believe, it, it, that the best explanation is that these are coming from people who really were there. And why would it have been difficult, do you think, for the gospel authors to fake that geographical knowledge? Well, sort of like what I said about not live blogging, similarly, no Wikipedia, no Google, um, or not even, as I remember from my youth, an atlas. You know, nobody uses an atlas anymore. We all, we all do it online. But you could go to a big library, you could get out this huge book, and you could open it and say, you know, if I want to set uh, some historical novel in Greece or something, you know, I'm going to look up, you know, where these things are in Greece and try to put that. There's nothing comparable to that. It, it's not even possible to research in the way that it has been possible to research even for the last hundred years in the West was not available to them. Um, so that would be very hard. 
and they get hard things right. There are even more in Acts because Acts goes beyond the land of Palestine and goes, you know, out all around the rim of the Mediterranean. But even within uh, the Gospels, including Luke, written by that same author, um, there are just so many things that you would just not be able to go look up somewhere. You would have to just know. Now, what are some of the cultural customs that the Gospel writers include, and why are these important? Well, this culture at the time effectively in many ways ended in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem uh, by, by the Romans and the dispersal of the people, thousands killed, sold into slavery, the breakdown of the priesthood, no more um, sacrificial system in the temple and all of that. And so we, what we find is we find the gospel sort of walking with extreme confidence throughout this uh, complex cultural situation where you've got the the Jewish leaders and they have their own temple guards and they can levy certain taxes. And then you have the Romans, they have their soldiers and they levy, you know, different taxes and so forth. Um, they try to give some autonomy to the Jewish people. There's both conflict and cooperation going on there. Um, and, and then all of this ending a short while after. So I think it's important for people to realize that if errors in this area could count against the Gospels, getting it right has to count for them. Mm. You can't have a double standard on that. Um, and they, they do get it right repeatedly. And how did the Gospels' use of extra names show a kind of casual accuracy in the way that they tell their stories? Tal Ilan was an Israeli um, researcher just into, um, or is, for all I know, she's still alive, but into um, names of the Jewish people in different times and places over a very long period of time. And so we have statistics from burial boxes, uh, inscriptions, letters, documents, etc. And, you know, they didn't always use uh, the same names. And the same names were popular in all different places and times. So what we find is that the gospel authors tend to use these extra names to put them together with the most popular first names. So Simon was one of the most popular at that place in time. We confirmed independently. So when you find a Simon, they always have to have something else. You know, Simon the leper, Simon Peter, uh, Simon of Cyrene, and so forth. Mary was very, very popular female name at that time. So, you know, Mary of, uh, of Clopas or Mary of Magdala or Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're always telling us which Mary they're talking about. Um, and that's just, it's, it's a really great confirmation because that's how people really would have talked at the time. Uh, and that's what these people really would have been known as because otherwise you wouldn't know which one you were talking about. Now, Lizzie, you've written in great length about undesigned coincidences in another one of your books. But, but just very briefly, what are undesigned coincidences and why do you think they point to the veracity of the gospel accounts? I like to do this with an illustration, a hypothetical modern illustration. If you had a robbery um, and you had one person who claimed that he was there and he said that the robber's shoe was untied. He's describing his clothing and says this. Um, and then another person who says he was there um, 
he is describing what the robber did and how he ran away and says that he tripped and almost fell when he was outside the door. And so the man who mentions the shoelace doesn't mention the tripping and vice versa. That points to truth because neither of them appears to be attempting to complete or complement what the other one said. Okay, there's your undesigned part. It appears undesigned. And yet, in reality, in truth, the one part really could explain the other part. So that's a very classic type of undesigned coincidence, and that's why it points to truth. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Now, uh, one of the other chapters in your in your book, Testimonies, is about unexplained illusions. Again, would you mind just briefly describing what an unexplained illusion is and why that is significant here when we're talking about the Gospels? An unexplained illusion is it's a type of unnecessary detail. It's kind of like a subcategory of an unnecessary detail, but one that is just weird and that the author doesn't pause to explain. So I'll give an example. One of my favorite examples in the Gospels is related to that um, thing about going down to Capernaum. This is in John uh, chapter 2. And it says he he and his mother and his disciples and his brothers went down to Capernaum and they stayed there for a few days. Full stop, period. Okay, it, it doesn't tell what they did when they were there. It's like a throwaway verse in between the story of the wedding at Cana and the story of the cleansing of the temple uh, there at that Passover that was coming up. Um, We don't know why they stayed there for a few days or what the purpose was of their visit. And that's the kind of thing that if you're looking at your audience all the time, so always got an eye on the impression that you're making, you're likely to edit out. You're likely to say to yourself, you know, that's just going to be distracting. It's got no purpose. Either I need to explain more about what this is all about, or I need to drop it. A good writer would do that. But a speaker, and especially a person just telling memoirs as he remembers them, kind of an oral history type of thing, is more likely to le- to put something like that in and leave it there because it's very unstudied. It's very unselfconscious. And so that's why I think unexplained allusions like that are such good evidence of, of truthfulness in the gospel narratives. Lydia, I suppose one of the reasons why skeptics might say that the gospels actually aren't reliable is some of these apparent contradictions between the different gospel stories. Now, what are some of those contradictions and how do you personally think they can be reconciled and therefore not pose an issue when it comes to the historical reliability of the gospels? There are, you know, of course, innumerable Ones. And one thing that I encourage people to do is to see alleged contradictions in categories. So um, not not to think of it as, a, as an infinite line going off into the distance and, oh, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one, you know, type of thing. Um, but to put them in categories. So, for example, arguments from silence, you know, like it's, it's supposedly a contradiction, uh, you know, that... Um, the synoptic gospels don't mention Jesus saying before Abraham was I am. Well, that's not a contradiction. It's just that they don't they don't mention it, you know. Um, so or um, a situation where one gospel might mention two angels at the tomb and another gospel might mention only one. And that you just kind of realize, well, you know, 
that doesn't matter. Maybe only one of them spoke, right? Um, and then other things like, I call them over-readings. So here would be an example in the resurrection narratives. Matthew goes immediately after the story of the guard at the tomb to the disciples going to Galilee. So, you know, he's, he's told about the resurrection and the women coming to the tomb. And then he goes into the garden's tomb story, and then he goes right away, the 11 proceeded to Galilee. And um, you might gather from that, you might think from that, that the 11, which are Jesus' main male disciples at that point, never saw Jesus before they went to Galilee, because then he proceeds to tell about them seeing Jesus in Galilee. Um, and then you find over in Luke and in John, you know, they had like a whole week in in uh, Jerusalem, and they saw Jesus, according to John, twice in Jerusalem. Luke mentions one time in Jerusalem. So skeptics definitely like to make a big contradiction, you know, out of that. But you say to yourself, okay, I need to be ready to revise my initial impression. This happens in non-religious documents as well, by the way. You might get a first impression, but then you should be flexible enough in mind as a good historian, to revise that first impression rather than, you know, being rigid about that initial reading that you had and then saying that cannot be changed, that has to remain unchanged. That would actually be a poor approach. So in this case, we say, okay, you might gather from Matthew that they didn't see him in Jerusalem, but Matthew doesn't actually say that. So you revise that and you say, okay, they could have seen him in Jerusalem first and then later gone to Galilee. So those are some of the categories that we learn to use and some of the sort of the mental moves we we learn to make, I think, justifiably um, concerning alleged contradictions, which is not to say that we have to have an answer for all of them. Um, again, in good historical practice, there are going to be things where you're going to say, you know, I don't know, maybe there is a minor uh, actual contradiction there. I don't always have to have something to say. I don't always have to have an answer. That, again, is part of that flexibility of mind that is the mark of a good historian. And um, obviously related to that, one of your chapters, again, in Testimonies is Unexpected Harmonies. Now, what again, what is an une uh, unexpected harmony and how do you think that points to the reliability of the Gospels, Lydia? I think it's surprising how often with the use of just a uh, reasonable imagination, not not straining, not forcing, you actually can't reconcile these apparent contradictions. And so this would be um, reconcilable variation was a phrase that an older scholar used. When you find it happening again and again that this actually makes sense and you can put these together, um, then you start to say, okay, this, this looks like life because this is what happens in life. You know that one person might say, um, the robber jumped into his car. And another person might say, I saw him running across the parking lot, running away on foot. And then you come to find out that the one person was standing at one part of the window. The other guy was standing at the other part of the window. And, you know, the he ran on foot across the parking lot and that person couldn't see the truck. But the, where the other person was standing, he could see him jump, jump into the truck. You know, that's that's what life is actually like. And so in that sense, they contribute to that texture of witness testimony where you might have some apparent contradictions, but that they are reasonably resolvable. 
If the gospel accounts are true, then what difference does this actually make, Lydia? Well, I think it means that skeptics need to take them a lot more seriously, for sure. Um, And at least, at, at a minimum, when we're talking about a miracle, be it the resurrection or something else, um, that's in the Gospels. I think we need to take very seriously the idea that this account came from someone who was close to the facts. This is what someone said who was close to the facts. Now, then we might say, okay, he was lying, like a skeptic might say he was lying. Um, and we need to examine if that's a good explanation of his having said this, you know, or what are the probabilities that the person could have been mistaken and so forth. But once we get a reason to believe that this wasn't just like made up, way later. It makes a big apologetic difference. Um, so in the case of the resurrection, if the Gospels really tell us what those guys were out there saying shortly thereafter, then our options are somewhat limited because those kinds of things are not the kind of thing you could be easily mistaken about, you know, that you're sitting and eating with your your friend who was previously dead. You know, that's it's not just kind of seeing him way over there and going, oh, I think that looks like Jesus. And you could just be Shit. mistaken. Um So I think it really, it kind of limits the skeptical options. And then I think it also makes a difference to those who are already Christians that we can, with greater confidence, use these things and apply them to our own lives, like Jesus' teachings and so forth, without having to say, "Hmm, you know, maybe he didn't really say that at all. You know, maybe that's just something someone put into his mouth. So in that sense, it makes a lot of difference. So as we come to the end of this episode, Lydia, are you suggesting then that if the veracity of the Gospels can be proved or, you know, proved to a a greater degree than than perhaps some people might think, then actually what they're talking about, the miracles, the things like that inside the Gospels, they can also be proved to a certain extent? Right. It's going to greatly increase their evidential value for those things. I'm not asking anybody to be simplistic and just say, okay, the Gospels are true, so I believe, you know, whatever the Bible says, it's true. And we could still um, take an approach where we're investigating whether this is a good argument. But it definitely is going to have significant evidential value for what is within them if we conclude that they came from people who were close to the facts and were habitually truthful. And that I think we can definitely argue for and support. Lydia, thank you so much. We're going to be talking a bit more about Jesus, the historical Jesus, the authentic Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels. But that's all we've got time for today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Ruth. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.